All right, and open up your Bibles uh, to Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, we've been reflecting during this Advent season on these verses, these promises to us from God. And we're going to take just a few minutes this morning to reflect on yet another aspect of the unbelievable gift that God has given us. And we're going to do this in light in particular of the opportunity we have today to partake of the Lord's Supper and what that means for us as we do every month here um, the first Sunday. Um, we're going to spend some time reflecting on these truths and how this is such a blessing and encouragement to us, and even more so during this Christmas season. Would you join me as we read from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And this is God's holy, inerrant, and eternal word. During this Advent season, as we think about what it means to have already be, been given the most unbelievable gift that we could ever receive, the good news that Mitch was just talking about, this good news that we get to run and share and talk about the Lamb of God who has come to save us, we're also reflecting on the fact that our Savior has risen from the grave and has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and is we're waiting His return. Advent is about not just the kingdom that we have already received and that is coming into the world, but the kingdom that is yet to come into this world in all of its fullness and its glory. And so Isaiah is pointing out not just to what we have already received, but what we will see coming true more and more as God advances His kingdom in places all around the world, like in Southeast Asia on Pearl Island and here in Paso Robles. And so we're living in this moment that is in between two ages 
the age in which Christ has already come and His his kingdom is advancing, and yet we're still here in a broken and hard world awaiting the fullness of the kingdom. In that context, that means the gift that God has given us is even more amazing and better than anything we have already received. So what does it mean for us to have received this one that God has sent, the one He has named, and, and given us this whole litany of names to reflect on. Last week, we looked at how He is our wonderful counselor. The week before, we looked at how He's breaking light into the darkness, and He's the gift of light in a dark world. And today, we want to take just a few minutes to reflect on what it means for us to have been sent in the form of a human baby, the mighty God, the mighty God. And in particular, I want us to reflect on that in light of the Lord's table. Um, And so we're going to kind of break it out into four pieces, uh, four things that we want to reflect on today. We want to reflect on the fact that our God is mighty in knowledge and justice. And we're going to reflect on the fact that He is mighty to act, and He is mighty in His love, and finally, He is mighty to save. All right? Uh, The reason I think these are important for us to reflect on is that a lot of times when people have a conception of God, we believe in a God who is actually more like us and, and not so much like God. He is limited in time and space and certainly in His knowledge. But what we find in the Bible is a God who is unlimited in His knowledge His might allows him to know all things. And furthermore, not just to be mighty in what he knows, but to be mighty in what he does with what he knows. To be a God who does always, not just that which is good, but that which is just, that which is right in all circumstances. So Jeremiah uses this term, a mighty God, this El Gabor that is found in Isaiah. Uh, He uses this same phrase talking about God here in Jeremiah 32 when he talks about what it means for God to be mighty in knowledge and justice. And so in Jeremiah 32, he says, you show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of armies, right? If you didn't know what that phrase meant, um, every time you read that in the Bible, Lord of hosts, it means Lord of armies, okay? Um, I don't know why we don't just change it, because that's what the the word actually means. And, And he goes on to say, this God is great in counsel. We talked about that last week, right? and mighty indeed. And we're going to talk about that more here. He's mighty in his action. And his eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. Now, this is good news and bad news. Because that one thing that you don't want anybody else to know that you did this week or that you thought this week or that you said when you thought nobody could hear you, God knows that. And He knows all the things that you have done. He knows us intimately and well. 
right? The psalmist has said, you search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. And that's great as long as we do everything perfectly. Because we also know this God is holy. And He only does that which is right. He's sinless, right? And He's going to ensure that there is justice on the earth. In other words, sin must be paid for. That's why we need a Lamb of God, right? And because He's righteous, He's going to make sure that all of us actually receive what we are due or that the payment has been properly made. Otherwise, He wouldn't be a good God or just God. In the book of Hebrews, we're told that none of us are hidden from God's sight and all of us are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Do you know what that means for you and me? It means that when God sent His Son, Jesus, into this world, Jesus knew through all time and space everything that you and I were ever going to do. And it meant that He understood that all those sins against a high and holy God and all those sins we've committed against others must be paid for. And that mighty God was sent into this world to interact with fallen human beings, Andrew and Peter and all of these different people, but to interact with you and me. Which brings us to the Lord's Supper. See, here's the thing. The only people that can take this supper correctly are the people who understand something really profound. I desperately need my sins to be paid for. (laughs) There is a God who knows me, who is holy. He's mighty in all of His knowledge, and He is mighty in justice. And He will not allow any sin to not be paid for. So the Lord's Supper is a confession. It's saying, I need God to do something for me. (laughs) Because... I'm limited in my knowledge, my time, my space, but I have filled a lot of my knowledge, my time, and my space with sin and selfishness and self-centeredness and pride. And I need a Savior because I haven't loved God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength perfectly. I certainly haven't loved everybody that He's created as my neighbor. So I need a Savior. And that's what this is about. So we have a God who is mighty in knowledge and mighty in justice, but He's mighty to do something about it. You know, have you ever been frustrated when it comes out in the news that that a politician or a leader in some organization knew that something was broken in their organization or knew that something was broken in a society or in something, and they, they had the capability of doing something about it, but they didn't do anything? They were passive in the face of evil or brokenness. They could have done something proactive or good, but they didn't do it, right? But when we talk about the God of the Bible being mighty, we're saying He's mighty to act. He's mighty to do something about our condition, right? And, and, and the good news is this. 
There's nothing that can stop him from fulfilling his will. He will act in accordance with his will in all places at all times. Once upon a time, there was a great king, the most powerful man, not just of his century, but of his millennia. His name was Nebuchadnezzar, and he had built the most powerful empire to ever arise on the face of the earth. And he thought... It was all because of him. (laughs) And God warned him. He refused to listen to God's warnings. And so God disciplined him. This is an act of God's grace, by the way. When God disciplines us, it's to bring us back to him. And God removed him from his throne and put him in a condition of mental disarray so that he was treated like an animal. And eventually, he was brought back, his mind restored by God's grace, brought back from his time of discipline. And he prayed this prayer, which we find in the book of Daniel. And it says something really profound to us about the God who acts. Look at Daniel 4, 34. And Daniel uh, records there the words of Nebuchadnezzar the king. He says, at the end of my days, when I'd been brought back, I lifted my eyes to heaven My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored Him who lives forever. Because He's not, our God is not bound by death. That's a consequence for our sin, right? And He says, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion. There is no end to the expanse of God's authority, and His kingdom is endures from generation to generation. There's only one king that will be around. I, I tell people this all the time. If Jesus doesn't return, I have some, some news for you. You may not feel like it's good news, but it is good news in a biblical context, and that is this. America will not last. It will not last. No nation has ever lasted. The Roman Empire is no longer The Mongol Empire is no longer. The great emperors of China, no longer. Human kingdoms rise and fall. But there's a kingdom that doesn't. It's the kingdom of God. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are as counted as nothing. And Nebuchadnezzar says, listen to this, he does according to his will Among the host of heaven, God does whatever he wants with the stars, the cosmos, the planets, the universes that are out there, all the things that are beyond the Milky Way. You know, scientists go out there with things like the Hubble telescope, and what they find is that even the deepest reaches of space, the farthest back that we can see, you know what we see? More. (laughs) More. Infinite, almost, it seems like, right? So he does according to his will among the host of heaven and also among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Wow. We need to reject the kind of thinking that leads us to believe in a passive God or a limited God. The Jesus who showed up 
accepted only the limits that he had placed upon himself to cloak and veil his glory temporarily that we might be drawn close to a God unlimited in power, unlimited in holiness and greatness. Uh, Dr. John Piper puts it this way, God is not frustrated, brothers and sisters. I don't know if you came here today and you're frustrated by circumstances, by brokenness, by the problems of this world, by things not working out the way you want them to, but your God is not frustrated. There's nothing that is outside of His control. He is not frustrated. Uh, the psalmist puts it this way, our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. He is not passive. Whatever God wants to do, He does. He's not limited by your will. He's not limited by your desires, your plans. He's not limited by nations. He's not limited by disease. He's not limited by wealth. He's not limited by time or space. And because He's an infinitely just God, He will always act justly. To do that which brings about justice on the earth. Uh, Deuteronomy 10, 17 says this, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. He is not partial. You can't bribe your way into God's kingdom. You can't buy your way into that kingdom. God's not going to look at some of you and pick favorites and say, I like some of you. I don't like others of you. He's not partial. He doesn't take bribes. Everything is driven by His grace. You know why that's good news? Because the Jesus who came was not limited when the Romans nailed him to a cross. He says, I lay down my life. He did that by choice. And in the Lord's Supper, we're saying God has acted to deal with my sin. He chose to bear the weight of my sin and my brokenness on the cross of Calvary to act against His enemies. Now, those of us that are opposed to God, hostile in mind because of our sinfulness, we are, in fact, God's enemies in one aspect, but God sees a bigger set of enemies. He has Satan, his opponent, and he has the sin of our, this world and all of its nature. He has death itself as his enemy, and God has acted against his enemies. This King of glory, mighty amongst us, is the Lord, strong and mighty, mighty in battle to bring himself into right relationship with this world, to reconcile us. That's what Scripture says. They came to reconcile us, to make us right with God. Now, here's the question I have for you. If you knew somebody who was all-powerful or all-significant, it might be good news to you if they liked you right? If you were in China right now, and, and the man who's leading China, Xi Jinping, if he likes you, it could be a very good thing for your life and your career. You could become very wealthy, very powerful, very influential, right? But if he doesn't like you, it's probably not going to go very well, <laughs> right? But if you know God, 
and he's mighty in his knowledge and his justice and his mighty act, the question you and I have to ask is, how do I know what he's going to do is good for me? And the biblical answer is because he's mighty in love. The driving principle of this God is that he is mighty in love. Jeremiah earlier talked about him being full of steadfast love, right? That's not just Jeremiah's words. Look in Nehemiah, talking about this mighty God. Nehemiah 9.32, Nehemiah prays this way. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God. Are you beginning to catch a pattern of how people talked about God here? You keep steadfast covenant and steadfast love. And he says, and therefore, therefore, God, because you are the kind of God who is loving, let all the hardship that has come upon me not seem little. And if you keep reading, it's not just individual, it's corporate. It's not just him as an individual. Let all the things that we have experienced not seem little to you. Brothers and sisters, what I'm trying to say to you is this. You and I can have confidence in God's love. Because his love is so mighty. It's not limited. So, part of what we're saying in the Lord's Supper is this. I'm trusting. I believe, not just that God has acted, I believe that He's loving. And I trust that the work He has done on the cross is for me. It's for me. I tell you this all the time, that the Lord's Supper is a confession of faith. It's you telling God, I believe, not just that you're enough, but that you did it for me, that you love me. We can have that confidence in God's love. Now, let me just point out, that requires us to reject trusting in other things, right? I know Mitch and Sarah know this experience, but one of the things that becomes clear when you're trying to deal with people coming out of other faith backgrounds, it becomes difficult because they want to cling to trusting to other things as well, right? Trust not just in Jesus, but trust in the ability to do all the right works, not just trust in Jesus, but maybe trust in other powers, other spiritual powers and authorities, right? Well, we do the same thing. Yes, yes, I believe in Jesus that what He's done is enough and it's good, but really, I'm, if, if you want to know the difference between me and my neighbor, it's not God's grace, it's the fact that I go to church every Sunday, or I read my Bible, or I'm a better person, I do good things. So, can I just say to you that if we're going to trust in God's love, we have to trust in its fullness and its radicalness, and that means we have to stop trusting in our own might and ability and trust and delight in knowing God. Jeremiah, by the way, understood that. Look at Jeremiah 9.23. He says, the Lord says this, that let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Mitch talked about how important it was for us to draw near to Jesus, right? 
Let that be your confidence that I am here and He is near me and He's speaking to me, speaking into my life. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. God delights in loving you. He delights in it. Is that your confidence? Well, that's what the Lord's Supper is saying to the world. Not that you've figured something out. Not that you've got all the answers. Not that you've got all the wisdom or all the things right. No, no, no. The Lord's Supper is saying, I believe that Jesus loved me while I was still in my sins. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that shocking that He would love you like that? That love motivated Him to send His Son to be the mighty God amongst us, Emmanuel. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, right? Why? Why did He send His Son? Because He loves us. And that mighty Son lived the life that was unlimited. Just, I, I wanted to give you just a second to reflect on that. Before Jesus shows up on the scene with John the Baptist and Lamb of the God, what does John the Baptist tell people about the one who is coming, who's going to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy? He says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I and the difference is so big that I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. <laughs> That's how big the difference is. And then during his life, as Jesus is healing and freeing people from the bondage of demons, as he's setting lepers free from disease, as he's going to, to people that are caught up in decades of, of decay and disease in their own life and freeing them, as he's raising little girls to life, he's speaking to the water and to the waves, and they do what he says and the disciples look at that and they say, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Do you know why that's so important for you and me? Because some of us, probably all of us sometimes, and some of us more of the times than we would like to admit, we don't really believe that God is able to deal with with some particular brokenness in our life. Some situation, some addiction, some pattern sin. Yeah, God, I know you're big enough to pay for my sins, but you can't deal with that. <laughs> Maybe it's in your home or in your relationships. Brothers and sisters, if the waves and the wind obey Him, there's not a situation that He can't speak into with authority. When Jesus was raised, He happens to meet a couple of His disciples on the road to Emmaus, and, 
They don't recognize him. They don't understand he's pulled off the greatest act of might there is. He's defeated death itself and risen from the grave, taking up life itself by his own authority. And they're still thinking of him as a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God and all the people. And they miss out on how big his might really is. He's standing there alive. So this supper is about that God being alive and present through His Spirit in this room right now. The same love that compelled Jesus to sacrifice Himself while we were still sinners, that love that drove Him to the cross is the love that drives Him to shape all things to work together for our good. And so often when we read Romans chapter 8, verse 28, many of you memorize that, you know, we emphasize the fact that we have a love for God, but that's a love that He's initiated. And all of the end of Romans 8, and really all of, all of Romans 8, is about the, the, the vastness and the might of God's love. Our love is but a reflection of that. And so when we read this assurance that all things will work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to His purpose, remember it's His love that drove Him to call you to Himself. And there's nothing that will separate you and me from the love of God. You know, this morning I struggling as I was praying all night and this late at night and early this morning for our sister Jan and I I wanted to send her some encouragement and I wanted her to know the love of God and His presence with her. And I was thinking about these words here. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Someday, if Jesus doesn't return before then, we will die. And His love will not stop at death's doorway. His love will not stop at death's doorway. He will bring us all the way home. And the Lord's Supper is a testimony to that. It's saying that someday, us, bought by the blood of Jesus, the family of God, we will be brought into His presence. Together we will feast. Because love doesn't end God's, or death does not end God's love. Nothing separates us because God's love is mighty. Do you know the God who is mighty to save? Yes, He knows all. He's just. He's not passive. He will act. He will bring about justice. At the cross of Calvary, that just God poured out His wrath on His Son so that all sins would be paid for. And then He took that Son's work and applied it out of His love to those who will believe in Him. So do you know the God who is mighty to save? 
you know, when I started reflecting on the idea that we have a mighty God, the first passage that came to my mind was Zephaniah 3.17. It may not be the most popular verse that most of us might be reflecting on, but I want you to see its depth and its beauty. Zephaniah speaking for God, projecting truth into a people who are broken and cast off and without hope. It says this, the Lord your God is in your midst. Where? In your midst. He's right here. He's right here. He's not limited. He doesn't require a minimum attendance number to show up. He's here. He says He's a mighty one who will save. That's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. A God who is mighty to save. Oh, here is hope and assurance that this body broken for us, this blood poured out for us is enough. Here we will memorialize and remind ourselves and even encounter God in His grace and presence as He has given us these tangible realities to remind us that He is not angry at us. He's rejoicing over us with gladness. Did you wake up this morning feeling like God's disappointed with you? Maybe you're looking at yourself in the mirror and you know your mistakes and you know your sins. And yes, this table is a chance for you to confess and cry out for greater grace, to know the truth of how God could see you. But brothers and sisters, don't miss out on the fact that your God is rejoicing over you with singing. I think of a parent singing a lullaby over a baby. Right? He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you. Not because of anything you and I have done, but because we are covered with the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. The God who is mighty to save, who is amongst us. So, the worship team's going to come up, and I'm going to pray, and then we're going to take a few minutes to reflect. And, and during their singing, that's what we want you to do. If there are sins in your life that you need to confess, please confess them. If you have a broken relationship with a believer that you have not yet done all that you can do to be at peace with them, then at least commit to God to make that right as soon as possible. For this is a, a table for the family of God. And if you're not sure where you stand with God, you're not sure you believe in a God who is mighty to save, then I would encourage you to not partake of this. Ask God to speak His truth, to convince you and remind you of who He is, the God who is faithful to save through His Son, Jesus Christ. But if you're a confessing believer in Jesus and you are still marveling at the fact that there's a God who is exulting over you and who is glad to be in your presence, who sent His Son to reconcile you to Him, whose love will not be defined or defeated by death, then this is, this is a place for you to be reminded of that greatness as we look to the future hope 
of a king who is coming back. Isn't that amazing? So let's, let's pray together. The worship team's going to lead us in a time of reflection, and you reflect, and then as they're done singing, then we'll partake of all of these elements together in just a few minutes. Father God, thank you for being mighty, mighty to send your Son, mighty in knowledge, mighty in love, mighty in justice. You are not passive in the face of sin and brokenness, but you are invading the world with your kingdom. You are making all things new, and you will bring all of history to its climax in your presence. So forgive us, Lord, for ways that our lives have not reflected that gospel truth and that good news. Forgive us for our unbelief. And today, as we partake of your table, speak that grace and truth over us again. We pray that not only for those present here amongst us, but because you are not limited by time and space, especially we think of members of Redeemer wherever they are scattered we pray, God, that you would speak grace and truth over them and they would know your love and your peace and your healing and your wholeness. Whatever work you want to do in our lives, we submit ourselves to you in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.